Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. For all readers, especially fans of Silas House, a rare treat is being presented to you. If you have the COVID-19 blues and need a narrative distraction that will take you deep into the Appalachian Mountains, Silas and Blair Publishing have gotten together to combine three of Silas's best-selling novels, forming a trilogy that are now considered essential reading to understand the Appalachian and rural experience of Kentucky. Clay's Quilt, The Cold Tattoo, and A Parchment of Leaves are being reissued in beautiful new editions, all contain bonus material. Just about every time we talk with Silas or hear him read or pick up an essay he's penned for the New York Times, he never ceases to amaze. Silas is the best-selling author of six novels, a book of creative nonfiction, and three plays. His writing has appeared frequently in many publications, including Time and Garden and Gun, the New York Times, He's won numerous awards. Before this trilogy publication, Silas had great success with Southernmost, his latest novel. He teaches at Berea College and in the Spalding University School of Writing. Silas, uh, welcome once again to Think Humanities. Thank you, Bill. It's always great to talk to you. Well, this is um, this is quite a summer surprise uh, for uh, us, uh, for your fans, for readers. Tell me first, who came up with the idea that you have these three no- uh, novels and they were written early in your career and they might work best read all together or a reissue with uh, some uh, added attractions? Uh, tell me a- about that concept. Was that your idea? Uh, well, its origins are really sort of uh, boring publishing stuff. You know, it's... Uh, Random House owned the rights to these books, and then their license expired. And when when their license expired, I really wanted to go with Blair because it's such a great independent Southern press, and it's run uh, by an old friend of mine, Lynn York, who's a wonderful writer herself. And um, I had met the editor down there, and I just loved what they were doing. And they were enthusiastic about reissuing this as a trilogy. You know, the thing about these three books is that they were released um, out of chronological order. So even though if if you're reading this trilogy in chronological order, Clay's Quilt would actually be the last book that you read. It was was the first book that was published. And then the first book chronologically was the second book, etc. So basically the reason that happens is because I didn't know the books were connected until I wrote The Cold Tattoo, which was published third. So since all three books came out, a lot of people like to read them in chronological order, meaning by time period of the novels instead of when they were released. And so Robin Mayura um, at, at Blair, uh, she, 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 I guess she and Lynn were the main people who wanted to put them out all together um, in this way. Um, and I love the way that they did on the packaging, you know, the uh, different colors, but the but the covers match, even though they're different, and um, all the supplemental material. 
so I, and they feel really good. So I'm just really proud to be with Blair. I love what they're doing. Well, I'll let you uh, describe them a little bit. I, I want people to, to go and, and buy them uh, or order them. So d- describe the, for those who won't be able to see the book for a while, uh, tell me, for example, uh, you, you've said that you really like the cold tattoo cover and, and the, 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 the colors in it and, and the way that the artist uh, has put some trees in it and that sort of thing. Kind of give us a description of why you like the books the way they look now. Well, the cold tattoo is very sort of stark red, and it has trees that are upside down along the top. I really love it because it's uh, at its heart, it's an environmental uh, novel. Um, I mean, the human story is always first, but there's an environmental issue that runs throughout the novel, and so it's about environmental devastation, and so I think that reflects that well. And then on the flip side of that, we have a parchment leaves, which is set in a more pristine Appalachia um, before technology was, you know, so uh, monstrous and capable. And so uh, parchment leaves is just green leaves. Um, so it sort of looks like if you're lying down and looking up into a canopy of trees in the summertime. <clears throat> and then Clay's quilt is very blue, also has uh, the silhouettes of trees. Um, in a different season, probably a springtime tree. And I think that cover is really good because it's sort of melancholy, you know, and even though the book is full of like bar fights and honky-tonking and lots of wild dancing and stuff, it is uh, it is also about really melancholy people. And so I just think the designs all capture the books really well. At what stage of your writing um, uh, of the cold tattoo did you think for maybe the first time, uh, or maybe you had thoughts about it in the past, but that you really thought that these three novels uh, were one or could be one, a generational story that you um, have gifted all of us and your readers uh, that really tell a true story of some of your family and uh, a true story of, of Appalachia and rural Kentucky? Uh, well, I was working on the cold tattoo, although it wasn't called that at the time. I, I was just working on a novel about two sisters who were uh, total opposites, yet had this incredible love for each other. And so I wasn't very far into the book when I realized, oh, this is Clay's mother and Clay's aunt. And then I thought well, it would be really interesting if they were also... Um, the granddaughters of Vine, the main character in A Parchment Leaves, and it would make it all, it would all just work together perfectly. And so it fell together pretty seamlessly that way. And so The Cold Tattoo is, in a way, it's a sequel to A Parchment Leaves, while it's also a prequel to Clay's Quilt. And and I did love the idea of uh, a trilogy. Uh, You know, the, the whole thing put together would be about a thousand pages. And we had thought about publishing them all three together as one book, you know, but that would be a doorstop. <laughs> and so it would be pretty daunting to pick that up. You know, I think it's uh, much easier to approach it in three sections this way. Um, but I really like uh, that the books cover from about 1838 to about the year 2000. And so it's a pretty comprehensive uh, look at Appalachian history, really, through the lens of this one family. You have said many, many times that, of course, you're a, a child of Appalachia, 
you always wanted to write about your place, uh, your home, uh, your roots. That's what was it not that drove you, uh, gave you the passion to to first put these um, words down uh, in in the novels you've written. These first uh, these first three. Talk a little bit about your desire and and the the pull that. Uh, the mountains in Appalachia, your rural upbringing always had for you? Well, I think the main thing is that I just felt like I had something different to say um, while also being pretty firmly rooted in the Appalachian literary tradition. Uh, the first book published, for instance, was the the most contemporary book of its time about Appalachia. You know, I mean, it came out in 2001 and it's set in the year 2000. And I, I really wanted to write about Appalachians as modern people, as people who were both local and global. Um, and then the other two books that go with it you just sort of uh, expand that story. And, you know, I, I'm always telling people that I don't, I don't think that my books are uh, the epitome of the Appalachian story. They're just one Appalachian story. There's just one story of rural America. And my thing is, you know, the more stories we have of rural people and rural America, the more complex ideas people have of rural Americans. Whereas, you know, for the past 150 years, so much media, particularly visual media, has simplified the region so badly. Or not in the region, we can just say all of rural people, period. And I think literature has historically been the balancing act on that. Uh, literature has looked at the complexity more than the simplicity that visual media tends to, to do. And so those are some of the things that I was thinking, you know, that I just wanted to tell, I just wanted to write about my own people and why I think the place is interesting. I don't ever want to romanticize the place or make Appalachian people into saints. Um, at the same time, I don't want to vilify the place and make them all into, you know, violent feudists. I want to talk about the in-between, the, all the people that are in between those absolutes, because people think about rural people in such absolutes. They think, some people think rural people are like all these really uh, humble, uh, generous, helpful people, or they think they're all violent, stubborn, um, small-minded people. And so the truth, of course, is in the middle of that. It's much more complex. When did you realize that you wanted so uh, badly to write a generational uh, novel about, about you, about your age, and not uh, something that... Um, that maybe you, in, in at least in Clay's Quilt, something that, that had been created many years before, which you then went back and, and did. But but you really had a, a, a strong uh, feeling about writing about you. Yeah. Well, I went to, um, when I went to college, was the, really the first time that I started meeting people who weren't from Eastern Kentucky. And I was just struck by... <laughs> the ideas they had about where I was from were, were so outlandish and all of their ideas were rooted in a people of the past 
they assumed that I didn't know contemporary music or that I wasn't aware, like in college one time, uh, I was in a, a group of people and somebody asked me if I knew who Johnny Carson was. I mean, everybody knew who Johnny Carson was in 1992, you know, <laughs> and just things like that. Um, and so I just wanted to, I, I had read somewhere that, you know, especially for first novels, what you really want is something that hasn't been done before. And, um, but at the same time, it wasn't that I was trying to fit any kind of marketing plan. It was also that I just felt there was a need for that. I loved so much literature set in rural America, but most of it was set in the far past. The closest I could get to my own generation was Gurney Norman's Kinfolks, which is a book I just adore, but it's set in the 60s and 70s, you know, um, and Lee Smith, uh, most of her stuff was set in the 80s and early 90s. That was as contemporary as it got. Um, but that was about as close as I could get. It was at least 10 or 15 years away. And I couldn't find anything about Generation X. And I, I always say, you know, when people think about Generation X literature, they always think about things like um, Brett Easton Ellis, um, Less Than Zero, American Psycho, and all those books are about rich kids who live in LA or New York. And that's what Generation X is, was thought of. And meanwhile, the vast majority of people born in Generation X were, were not that. And I wanted to write about those people. Can you believe sitting here today uh, in 2020 that that uh, the Clay's Quilt was published uh, almost almost 20 years ago? Yeah, March of 21, it'll be 20 years. Um, I mean, when you just have a moment by yourself and it's quiet and you're looking out that uh, beautiful window that uh, uh, looks out over your, your yard there and the sun streaming through, I mean, does, does it strike you as, my goodness gracious, how, how, how did all this happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I wrote that book and sold it, I thought that, I really just thought that just my family and, you know, a few people might read it. I had no idea that I would be able to have a career because of that book, you know, and so I owe that to to readers, of course. I owe it to booksellers and librarians and teachers. Um, so I'm always so thankful to, to those groups of people. And, you know, I sort of preach that gospel everywhere I go to support your local bookstore, support your, support your libraries. Um, <clears throat> because I certainly, I would still be a, a mail carrier uh, if it wasn't for bookstores and libraries and readers. Did you used to write some of it in your head or maybe in your notebook uh, when you were delivering mail? Oh, yeah. I wrote the, I wrote most of the first two books on the mail route. And just to go back to that, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a mail carrier. I don't mean to imply that. It, I just mean that it, it's a really hard job. <laughs> and I and I was uh, I found it to be a very difficult job that I loved the people, but the job itself was so hard. I was glad when I was able to quit and and become a full time writer for a while. But yeah, I would write you know all down my route. I would that's what I did. I would compose scenes in my head, and then I would get home. My kids were pretty little, and you know I would spend time with them, have supper, mow the yard you know, take the trash out, all the stuff that you do. And then <laughs> when the house was quiet, I would sit down and get that on paper, what I had composed in my mind. 
Um, parchment of leaves um, is taken from a James still. Uh, in fact, it, it, is that the, the, the mention of, uh, if you don't mind, I have it right here in front of me. There is so much writ upon the parchment of leaves, so much of the beauty blown upon the winds. I can but fold my hands and sink my knees in the leaf pages. Mm-hmm. Did, did the title come from that? piece or is that something that you found later or is that is that just in the reissue or is that in in the original yeah that's there from the beginning and that poem really was one of the things that inspired this book because to me the phrase a parchment of leaves just means nature you know it's nature in general it's that and it's also about the knowledge that's in nature so i like the way those words go together you know parchment to me speaks of knowledge right I mean, we will even refer to a diploma that way sometimes. Um, And leaves sort of summarizes nature for me. So I think the title to me is about the knowledge we can find in nature if we listen, if we be be still long enough. And so the main, uh, I always have sort of uh, key words or key phrases or key thoughts in mind when I'm working on a novel. This one in particular, I had a key poem being I Was Born Humble by James Steele. And also uh, the Bible verse, uh, Be Still and Know That I Am God. And to me, there's just, the, I think that's the wisest scripture because it's so much about it. You know, if you can be quiet and you can be still, you will gain so much more. You will gain so much more knowledge. Although, our inclination as Americans is to always be productive and always be moving and always be talking, you know, that's sort of the American way. Um, And so I wanted to write about that and think about that in this book. Well, the still part of that is uh, as a proper name has always, you've said been a a great influence on you personally and and on your writing. Uh, That's James still. Uh, talk a little bit about, um, uh, I've heard you mention before, and, and honestly, people aren't or don't know River of Earth um, and, and have not read it. You encourage people uh, and think that in the canon of, of Appalachian or of American work, uh, it should be uh, much higher than yeah. it is and much more recognized. I think the only reason that River of Earth is not known as well as Huckleberry Finn and The Catcher in the Rye is because it's set in Appalachia and it's about Appalachian issues and Appalachian people. Um, But when you think about an adolescent narrator, it's just as strong and vivid and well-written as those books. In fact, I would prefer it um, to those books. Um, I just think it's a really underrated masterpiece. And if there's one book that I could encourage more people to read, it would be River of Earth. I teach that every semester and I've been teaching for 10 years. So I've, I've taught it 20 times and I am always so moved by the way it continues to speak to young people. My students love River of Earth. It's really heavy in dialect. Um, it's set during the Great Depression. It's uh, not a book that spells things out for the reader, but they become so endeared to the characters and the and they learn so much about 
life during that time period and in that place through this human story. So I do wish more people would read it. I would like for you to also tell the story about uh, Cold Tattoo and what you had that you probably realized, but it, it took, I think I'm not misspeaking here, it took somebody like a Wendell Berry to point out that uh, this was an environmental book. And I don't know if, if you thought of it as you were writing it like that, or um, did it take a conversation with Wendell or a letter from Wendell to, um, for you to realize, yes, th th this is what it is? Well, I think the thing for me is I tend, I tend to write about big issues, you know, like Southernmost deals with LGBTQ issues. Um, a Porch from the Leaves deals somewhat with race and um, discrimination. Um, Same Sun Here deals with mountaintop removal. Eli the Good's about Vietnam, patriotism, freedom, et cetera. But I think the only way I can really deliver on a big issue like that is if I have a really strong human story. And so when I'm writing the book, I'm really only thinking about the character's reaction to that issue. And I think that if, I think a novelist has to be real careful with that because a book can become a polemic and a reader can just feel like they're being preached to unless the human story is bigger than the issue, you know? And so that's a long-winded way of saying in the cult tattoo, the whole book is about the sacrifices these sisters make for each other and their willingness to sacrifice their lives for this piece of land is just another part of those sacrifices, the selflessness they have, the uh, unconditional love they have for each other, but also for the land. Does that make sense? Um, and so, I mean, I did know that it was a very environmental novel that was dealing with environmental themes, but my main, um, my main goal there was to tell that human story and how that environmentalism was part of that. This reissue, the trilogy, uh, has some special elements to it that I, you, you don't find often. I want you to tell uh, our listeners about uh, your association with, uh, with Tyler Childers. And um, honestly, uh, I've not read uh, Bloodroot. Um, I've just sort of through this uh, discovered Amy Green. I, I, I'd like to meet her and know her and maybe we can get her in conversation with you in some way. Um, and, um, and then you also, uh, they, they both contribute essays to uh, these novels and then you, you write uh, your own. So mm -hmm. tell me first of all about your association with, with Tyler Childers and, and for people who, who may not be on the planet right now, um, as a Kentuckian, how, how well he's done and, and what he's doing and how emotionally uh, um, attentive he was to, to Clay's quilt and, and what it meant to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a great country music singer-songwriter who's uh, gotten a lot of uh, attention lately for his work, and he's a, such a great representative of the region. Um, and so at the, you know, at the height of his fame with his latest album, he, he wrote this forward um, while he was touring Europe and sent it to me in a really long text because, you know, he was on the road and couldn't get to a, a computer to send it by Wi-Fi. But um, 
that came about just because he's talked uh, a few times about the influence of Clay's quilt on his own writing and his own uh, identity. And what I, I never want to speak for him, but I think what comes through to me that he says is that Clay's quilt helped him to, you know, the whole world's telling you to be ashamed of who you are as a rural person, as an Appalachian, and Clay's quilt sort of taught him he didn't have to be that in fact he could be proud of that amy green is a beautiful novelist who's written two novels and so i was happy to have her forward and then when they were kicking around ideas for a forward for the cold tattoo i told them i had always wanted to write something about the music in the book so i'll just read um i don't know the first uh, two or three paragraphs of that forward at its center, the cold tattoo is about possessing an unbreakable love for someone who is your opposite, a theme that perhaps resonates even more in a time when we find our country so politically divided, especially within our own families. This novel is also about the love of place, the way the land becomes a part of us, and about the people who have fought to save it from environmental devastation. But the most enjoyable aspect of writing this book for me was the way it uses the music of the 1950s and 60s as an engine to propel the story forward, to establish the mood, and to offer subtle commentary on the action at hand. That is evident from the very first page when we meet free-spirited Anna Sizemore dancing with wild abandon to Maybelline by Chuck Berry. Employing this classic song right away does many things. Since most everyone knows the song, it allows the reader to be dropped immediately into the action and immersed in a sensory experience. It instantly situates the reader in the time period. The song offered me the opportunity to try to write to the beat of a boisterous song. And if you read the long opening sentence while playing the song, you'll find that you can tap your foot to both in the same time. Most importantly, it works thematically. Maybelline arguably has been called the first true rock and roll song, and the opening riffs on that electric guitar announced that from the get-go. But Chuck Berry wrote the song as an adaptation of the rollicking country song Ida Red, most famously popularized by Bob Wills. Maybelline was very much a country song with country lyrics, Chuck Berry once wrote. Maybe a little faster, but basically it was country. The same could be said for Aneth, who perfectly embodies elements of country and rock and roll. She is a symbol of Appalachia, untamable, stubborn, larger than life, beautiful, tortured. And in mid-century America, Appalachia, like Aneth, was a place where the local and the global were colliding via the increase of media and mobility. At that moment in 1955, when Aneth is dancing, like joy made into a human form, she is the manifestation of a culture that is changing. Aneth is embracing the change full force, while her other half, and the other half of Appalachia, her sister, Easter, is rejecting change. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's, and that's a great, um, that's a forward? That's the forward for the coat yeah. that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, that's new. You didn't, you didn't have that the first time around. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Real quick story, uh, Aneth is a, is a family name, correct? That's my maternal grandmother's name, and I have never heard anybody else named that. Um, but when I researched the name, it turns out it's one of the oldest names. It's uh, from Greek, 
and uh, the more commonly known derivatives of it are an, Anna, Hannah, of course. But Anna is the oldest form of those names. Music is a big part of your life, and that comes from your roots uh, in the um, in the Pentecostal church. Yeah, I mean, that was always my favorite part of the church service. And those church services were, honestly, some, sometimes people don't believe me, but sometimes they were three to four hours long. And most of that was the music. You know, one song could go 20, 25 minutes easily. Um, and and but but also you know I had an uncle who was a, a known banjo player around town, my aunt who lived right next door just loved every kind of music you know she had tons of records that we listened to all the time, so I, I just grew up in a world so full of music. And music is a big part of um, uh, of all of these uh, of your work. I mean Maybelline that that's just one example, but I mean uh -huh. you. Um, woven throughout uh, a lot of your writing are references to music and uh, they're listening to something on the radio so, sort of subtle in the background but but it's it's there and and that and that's intentional and you, yeah. it means a lot to you yeah yeah it has you know it has to work on two or three different levels i never mention a song just for the heck of it it means something yeah so uh, again for our listeners who don't know they can go to is it spotify well, my name on there, my username is Silas House Books, all one word. And um, <clears throat> so if they just search for Silas House Books on Spotify, yeah, all of my playlists will come up, and there's a playlist for every book of mine. Some of them have like 40 songs on them each, yeah. Yeah. Silas, um, it's an extraordinary experience um, that that you are living, and I know you realize that, and I know you're very thankful and, and uh, blessed to to have the the life that you you do you're still such a young guy even though that first book came out uh 20 years ago that's still hard to believe um what's next for you what have you not accomplished that you really would like to mm. well what's next for me is i have finished a new novel and it just i just sold it last week and so that'll be out in the next 18 months two years something like that it takes a while so I'm excited about that. That book is set in Ireland. And, you know, um, I will always in some way write about where I'm from, but I also want to write about other experiences I've had as well. And so I've been to Ireland many times. I've taught there three times, um, have dear friends there. And so I wanted to write a book set there. Um, you know, uh, I've also, I've been asked to write a TV series and I have been, putting that off and putting that off because I don't know how to do it <laughs> and so the next thing I'm going to sit down and really do is try to do that now with that said that doesn't mean that I'm going to have a tv series that just means that I've been asked to write one you know to to pitch to people um to see if there's any interest in it but it'll be you know I've always enjoyed just uh trying new stuff you know I was asked to write a play in 2006 by the University of Kentucky. And I had no idea how to do that, although I had read plays and seen plays my whole life. And so I learned how to do it. And since then I've written three more plays and I just, I love writing drama. Um, and so I'm, I'm gonna try this too and just see what happens. Well, that's, um, it's exciting to hear about your plans and it's uh, wonderful to celebrate along with you uh, the trilogy. By the way, does the, 
does the trilogy have a name as as one or is it uh how, how do you describe it uh we've been calling it the appalachian trilogy ah simply because what i said earlier it sort of covers such a long time period of appalachian history um i know that it's been in scholarly work a couple of times it's been referred to as the red bird trilogy and that's because in all three books, cardinals, which we would more commonly call red birds, show up sort of as a metaphor throughout the books. Um, and that was something that, you know, I didn't do intentionally. It just happens. So some people refer to it that way. Well, that's, uh, that's a, another wonderful anecdote that you shared with us. Uh, uh, we will see you soon. Thanks again so much for joining us on our uh, Think Humanities podcast. Silas House is... Uh, one of the most um, celebrated novelist, uh, writers, uh, playwright. Uh, Salas, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I can't thank you enough for everything you do for the humanities, particularly for literature, Bill. I, I appreciate you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.